Welcome to Building Our Future, with me, Bert Broadhead. Today, we're picking up on themes of interpreting the ever-growing availability of data and the rise of co-working and flexible office space. I'm meeting a renowned workspace scientist to understand the drivers behind what makes an office space work for the occupier and to explore whether that goes some way to explaining current design trends. Workspace science may well be a new area for many of you, but as the number of building sensors grows seemingly exponentially, I predict we'll become increasingly familiar with them in the near term. My guest today is Roz Pomeroy, a workplace scientist, specialising in the understanding of the interplay between spatial design and organisational behaviour in working environments. Together with Dr. Kirsten Seiler, Roz forms the Brainy Birds Consultancy and is particularly interested in how office space affects... <laughs> uh, Roz, you're going to have to Explain pronounce that, that one for me. Pronounce the word, which I think you're looking for there, Bert, which is Zusammenarbeit, which means literally working together. Thank you very much. Brainy Birds use data to help diagnose how a workplace ticks and what role design plays in this. Roz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, so, other than uh, quirky German words, which I don't know how to pronounce, how would you best describe the role of a workplace scientist? What we do as workplace scientists is enable organisations to make better decisions about their workplaces and how they can be set up to best suit their organisational objectives. So, by finding evidence for why something may or may not work in a particular context and having data to back that up, I think rather than fad fashion and plain assertion, organisations will get a better result from their investment in their workplace design by employing more scientific techniques. By design, we are talking spatial layout, furniture layouts, lighting, the full full shebang? Yes, I mean... What we're particularly interested in is the concept of a space and and what we would call a complex space. So it's not just one rectangular room where you can see all four corners, but typically a larger space which might be across multiple floors, would have multiple wings, which would have some parts which were visible, others which were less visible. So something to do with the way in which all those individual smaller spaces add up to provide a kind of a system, if you like. It's a systems approach to workplace design, what we would call configuration, and then how that affects the way people utilise and behave in that space. And I assume, um, being a scientist, data is a key element of this. What are the key tools that a workspace scientist can employ? Uh, We use several, but there are some which are pieces of software that have been developed. Uh, The main one we call Depth Map X, which simply by looking at the geometry of the floor plans can tell you a lot about how connected the space is, how likely it is that different parts of it will be utilised or not utilised. And really, if you do that analysis of what you've got and then match that up against what it is the organisation is trying to do with that workplace, you can say, well, this is a good fit or that isn't a good fit, rather than just saying, let's go on a tour of the space or I like the view out of the window. Is there a typical challenge that you may be presented with by a client? 
Normally, we find it's um, it's some kind of sense that something about the workplace design isn't really working for them. A typical example of that would be we're not communicating together as an organisation as well as we should be. So it's the old we're in departmental silos and we're in a knowledge business and we need to leverage our knowledge over the organisation as a whole, but somehow we've set it up so that people aren't talking to each other and we think the office space has something to do with it. And what we can then do is to use the tools and techniques we have to to kind of do a kind of audit and a diagnosis, if you like. It's a bit medical in some ways. It's what is it that could be contributing to this and therefore what things might you be able to do about it, which could be anything from, well, we already know that our lease is coming to an end and we're, we're looking for new space, so what would we do differently? Or it might be that there's some relatively small intervention that might make a massive difference. It, it seems to be much more in... in people's minds as to how productive or what, what the effect of your office is on, on the workforce's productivity. Co-working is, is a particularly interesting sectorist. Can you see any kind of particular reasons why co-working might be coming to the forefront based on what you see as a scientist? Well, I think there are a lot of factors involved in the, the growth of flexible space or co-working space. The design of that space is is one aspect of it, and which is something that we've done a fair amount of work in trying to analyse. The other more obvious factors are to do with flexibility on on terms, and the, sure. the, so that organisations not having to take out long leases and can hedge their bets and upsize, downsize quite flexibly. Obviously, as the name suggests, our particular interest is in the design because there is this idea that. It's the design and the and what that has provided, which we've identified sort of four aspects of what we'd call a sort of social resource for organisations who use co-working spaces. And those four uh, social resources are firstly co-presence, mm-hmm. secondly communication, thirdly community, and fourthly collaboration. And those ideas build on each other. But it is, in effect, the idea that by bringing people together you enable people, you afford the opportunity for people to communicate, that may in turn give rise to a sense of community and out of that community is the idea that individual players or businesses within that community may decide to leverage off each other's resources and what they have available. It's, it's like a grand networking opportunity and, and certainly we work is clearly uh, marketing itself as an organisation that affords those kind of opportunities and has some data to support the success of that as a strategy. On those four C's, is collaboration the ultimate aim of, of most officers? Well, it's often talked about. I mean, it's the thing that we hear a lot. It's another interesting area. And when you asked me before about the tools we use, one of the measurement tools we use is about measuring degrees of collaboration we have spent and can spend quite a lot of time with organisations really just digging into that and then providing metrics of sort of benchmark as is collaboration levels versus future and helping them to come up with appropriate measures so that they can see some evidence of success at the end of the day. Uh, looking at your, your four C's, so co- co-presence is clearly a physical thing of mm-hmm. being in the same space. Communication, community and collaboration – 
all quite kind of soft concepts, which, as you say, are multifaceted and dependent on a huge array of things. What role does the use of space have in order to facilitate this? Is, is it a key driver or are we really thinking about you know, other ways of creating that collaboration? Space undoubtedly can be a driver, but I don't. it's a, a necessary but not sufficient condi- condition, I would argue. Putting people in the same location as each other is likely to lead to the building of relationships, so communication and then relationship building, which in massed numbers you would talk about as community. There is a theory which says buildings can either bring people together or deliberately go about keeping people apart. So if you enable people in a, in a building configuration to, to bring them together, that is a condition. But on top of that, if you overlay, let's say something which has engendered a lack of trust between people. There might be some history involved in it. We've worked with one particular organisation I can think of where the organisation decided for all sorts of very good reasons to relocate from a a very siloed working environment and move to a single floor open plan uh, layout. There were two key departments in that business who really needed to work more closely together so they needed to collaborate and they could identify a measure of success out of that collaboration if they were to do it more what happened in the reality when we went back and looked at it 18 months after the move was that there was a there was a kind of a standoff between these two departments albeit that they were next to each other in an open plan floor what has happened was that it became much more apparent and visible to others if communication even forget collaboration was happening between the two departments and there was a kind of history of competitiveness and lack of trust and and kind of adversarial behaviors which then uh, was manifested in space by the the two heads of departments sitting themselves in the furthest corners from each other in this open plan space so that that um theory of um, proximity and adjacency where people choose to sit in the office so having uh, the senior people um, yeah kind of overlooking the troops and in their own uh, silos is is still from what I can see um, very very normal so if if we work on a premise that offices are fundamentally places of bringing people together how can seating aid this if we have a typical office setup which has allocated desks and typically those allocated desks are allocated by an organizational unit or department or team right, so sales sing together accounting together yep then immediately because we know in those sort of environments on average people spend about 44 percent of their time at their desk which is a, a good chunk of time and the people who are the immediate neighbors in that seating plan are the people that you tend to build close relationships with and you have all sorts of ad hoc conversations with so that's something that we would call spatial solidarity so that means if you're co-located with other people especially in the case of if you're Uh, seated with other members of your own department you already have some kind of common interest and then you reinforce that common interest by sitting people together so that's a spatial solidarity i.e proximity and a transpatial i.e a shared interest or a shared role 
spatial solidarity is where you match together the space with the common interest. A transpatial solidarity would be where you know that there's another expert in your field somewhere in a a, perhaps a wholly different organisation and you will travel the distance to go and see that person Uh, because you know you have enough of a common interest and you want to learn from that person or share ideas or whatever. So the, the old idea of... The guilds, the City of London guilds, would bring together specialists in the particular chosen craft in a guild hall attached to that craft because it recognised it's the idea of a club, really, isn't it? That you all come together because you have some kind of common interest and then you create a space where you bring those people together. So at that point, transpatial solidarity becomes an, a spatial solidarity in, for a temporary instant. There's a sort of default... Uh, position isn't there in most organizations even in activity-based working that teams will have team zones that you somehow have to keep those teams together at all costs now those teams that may be really important for the business but if you're at the same time trying to build cross organizational unit links then you know it's hardly surprising that if you if you don't find a physical place where people can spend an appreciable amount of time together to to kind of affect those relationships and then eventually go up the scale to a collaborative relationship. Now, how is that really ever going to happen? So there's one example, just to finish the story. um, We know of Innocent Smoothies, whose HQ is in London, and they have deliberately, with an allocated desk uh, policy, not activity-based working, they have mixed up their departments. So somebody from... HR could be sitting next to somebody from sales. That's a deliberately managed policy. And from time to time, it'll be mixed and changed because someone new comes in and there's a bit of a shuffle. But it's it's a planned mixing. People will naturally go and spend time with their sales colleagues because you just do, don't you? Because that's the department you're in. But outside of that, when you're at your desk, you're next to somebody else. And they say that that has produced a much greater understanding sort of cross-disciplinary understanding in the organization simply by changing the thinking on the seating plan so re- reading one of your blogs this isn't this isn't exactly uh new news so um a guy called tom peters in a book called get innovative or get dead uh, has said that mixing people and departments up is the number one way to change culture he wrote this 30 years ago so why yeah. if, if this is such an obvious win why is no one doing it i think there's a habit and also i suppose it comes back to this you know the whole thing we're trying to work with here which is data and evidence and you've rightly challenged me on where's the evidence for the success of the strategy at innocent i don't have it and and there is a a massive dearth of real rigorous and uh, sound research into all sorts of these workplace phenomena and, and this is where we're trying to to do more to substantiate a lot of things which just become common practice without people really thinking about them. Now, businesses are, are there to to be successful, to beat the competition. Why would you just follow what everyone else is doing? I think it's another source of competitive advantage. Certainly Tom Peters thought that. So I'm giving Tom Peters a plug again. Read the book again and, and have another think. We've touched on uh, on where people sit. Another thing I, I learned on your on your workshop was uh-huh. the importance of visibility. Can you explain broadly the kind of rationale behind this? The idea is 
what you can see from every any given point where you decide to sit or stand or work from and whether you can be seen is really fundamental to your experience of and other people's experience of that workplace so if you think you need some quiet booth for concentrated working but maybe between two people that are trying to work on a knotty problem then if you put that booth which may have let's say you know shoulder height screens around it if you put that in a place that is highly visible to the whole of the organization and people are often walking around there it will be very visible and therefore people will be aware others in the organization of what's going on in that space now that may be exactly what you want to achieve that may be you you might uh, want let's say you're very creative people working on some key projects for the organization that when they're in these huddles you want that to be visible that that's happening and kind of give people the chance to drop in and ask questions and sort of interact with others alternatively it might be something that's so super sensitive and you want people to be uh, being very confidential and it's very private and all of that so that it's shut away and it, it is not open and visible to the rest of the organization then you would choose a spatially different part of the office building you maybe choose somewhere that wasn't easily visible to others that you had to deliberately make an effort to go and find because it was tucked away in a corner somewhere there are examples that you've seen where people are kind of getting this wrong so it may be easier to understand from a concept of how how not to do it i don't think there's ever any absolute wrong it's always set in the context of what are you trying to achieve with something so an example i can think of is a, a large advertising agency who very much wanted to create a lot of community building spaces. People would come together from different disciplines within the agency you know, very, and also very buzzy, lively, creative type of a place. Yeah. It would also be very visible to visitors coming in. That would, you, you want to make that hub. And, you know, that's quite a common idea for a workplace design, isn't it? But what they'd done, given the space that they had, was to take the naturally most visible and the most, uh, that had the most potential for a space like that, and decided to put a whole suite of meeting rooms in it. So partitioned it all up, thereby kind of destroying any of that visibility or sense of, I might call it home or kind of heart, I suppose. You can model on a floor plate which areas are most visible from most other areas and in doing that modeling in this particular space it was very evident that they'd they'd taken away what was otherwise a a massively big potential space for them which therefore meant that where they did have their so-called hub it, it kind of wasn't working with the natural properties of the space but of course having seen in person um you know anyone who thinks visibility is straightforward um yeah i've seen heat maps isovists uh visibility graphs and all sorts which goes on um to, to actually identifying what the, the visibility metrics are for each and every location in various different setups so it's it's not a um yeah, it's not an easy science uh, and it's subject to a hell of a lot of different variabilities are clients better served engaging you at a design stage or come to you with existing problems to solve? The ideal is to, is to come along before you, you start. It's a way of modelling. It might be a way of modelling different design alternatives. Right. But often it's when people feel the pain somewhere but can't 
quite articulate what's wrong. They know something's wrong. And as you say, you can create what we would call a heat map to demonstrate how the properties of the space uh, would normally play out before you start adding in partitions and other and furniture and how you affect movement. And we haven't really talked about that particularly because that's all tied up with this as well. And I, this all brings me to my, my kind of uh, ultimate question, which is the one over the open plan office. So yes, we've seen co-working flourishing. Um, but open plan offices have been getting a real kick lately. Uh, it's been a spate of press articles and research reports written claiming that they lead to falling productivity. The Guardian's headlined that open plan offices were devised by Satan in the deepest caverns of hell. So the traditional assumption was that open plan would actually lead to greater collaboration. What's going on? How, how do we get this so badly wrong? One of the things that I think is, is crucial in what is still an open plan workspace is to provide some degree of privacy and intimacy and I think those things are possible. We've seen some research that was done at UCL, which demonstrates that some of the uh, the more popular types of working spaces are not the ones that are closed off in in little goldfish bowl type offices or or completely mm. cellularized offices, but they're the ones where you feel like you've got a certain degree of refuge I would I suppose I would call it and that that does play into that word intimacy where if you are to stand up and look around you get a sense of pretty much all your colleagues around you but you can nevertheless be invisible to some especially from behind that's something which psychologically people find it's threatening not to be able to to feel that people can come up behind you. Yeah, I thought and that that was interesting. So I always assumed that the desire to sit with your back to the wall in in the office was because I just didn't want people uh, looking at my screen. Whereas actually, there's like a primal protection thing. If you're sitting at a desk, as you rightly say, if you've got your back to the wall, you can see everything in front of you, and people can only see you from the front. So pretty much, what you can see is what other people can see of you, because behind you, no one can see you. But if you're sitting in the other side of that, maybe opposite to the yeah. to the person with the back to the wall, then you're looking at the wall. You can't see very much, but a lot of people behind you can see you, but you're not aware of it. And that feels uncomfortable. That's why when, if you look, and I'm sure you'd be aware when you go into a coffee shop, restaurant, cafe or whatever, people try and choose those seats which are deep into the inn, yeah. but provide you with the opportunity to watch what's going on without being having the feeling that you're being watched yourself and that same psychology will play out in a open plan space so i would say if anything the designers in open open plan spaces is provide that degree of refuge without it's not about not being seen and being closed off it's it's not feeling vulnerable and you know being on the end of a run of long desks that's immediately on a right if you got desks and no one wants walkway. to sit there you've you've probably gone wrong somewhere well it it means that you set up a hierarchy of desks where some are obviously more popular than others and that can then play out i mean this is a whole other thing oh, yeah. in yeah. in effect the people with more power in the organisation get the the desk where you have got your back to the wall and the the more junior you are you end up with the desk at the end of the the row and you're continually being interrupted um so one of the one of the uh, reports 
think you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong here about open plan uh, was or originated from Harvard. I guess it's quite dangerous just kind of reading the headlines from these research reports and not really kind of digging into them. But I think one of the main things is about the impact on concentration that open plan has because you're constantly being interrupted. It's easy to pull a headline out of something. And, and, you know, for sure, I'm not arguing that every single open plan office, whatever its actual detailed design is, is, is fit for purpose. And some are less easy to work in than others, for sure. Uh, so it's don't uh don't criticize open plan as a concept it's it is the devil is in the detail it's uh what else is in it if it was just a rect a huge rectangular room with rows upon rows of workstations and computer screens in a sort of call center type of idea you might have then that does sound pretty grim and i might agree with the the guardian headline but there are many better ways of designing more intimate but still open plan workspaces before we wrap things up we've, we've got a world which i have touched on before load more sensors load more ways of collecting data from a scientist's perspective is this is this a good thing or a bad thing is it making your life interesting more interesting or more complicated possibly both well, generally, I think it is a good thing because I think it, it's right to be challenging of office space. It's right to think of an office environment as something which could be a, a, a valuable asset which can make a difference to your business performance. I think that's all right. And, and you'd want to prove that somehow. It's making the link between all those things, which I think is tricky. Data for the sake of data is worthless. We'll soon be glossed over glazed over not paid attention to by those who are making the important decisions my time in organizations tell tells me that you need to you need to be pretty succinct you've got to come up with the executive summary at the end of the day even if the you know the management accounts the 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 key performance indicators they're they're kpis because they're there's a few of them and you've really focused down on the things that matter and the same applies in in workplace i don't think it's the volume of data but it's for sure having the right data and having data not just the managing director went out saw this new office and said i want one of those uh, sorry i'm just thinking about the way i chose this office <laughs> <laughs> have i just criticized you <laughs> no no, no. there's a lot of science behind it oh I'm believe sure me um <laughs> Is there anything on the horizon in terms of uh, what people are working towards within the industry in terms of testing, hypotheses, etc.? I see a general uh, a general trend based on the sorts of people that are talking to us, us and asking us for help into wanting to provide evidence and data for design proposals, um, whether it be at a stage of pitching for development projects or or whether it be further into the detailed design process so that they want the backup evidence for why a certain scheme is going to be better than another and is, do you think that is going to be driven by the designers or the clients uh, i think that must be coming a bit from both ends you know yeah. it's a bit of an iterative process isn't it i mean i'm thinking of an example recently where although we've been asked several times to to be written into a um, a pitch document that's because that's what the invitation to tender specified. So then the 
in this case architects concerned would approach us and say well we don't really have the in-house capability for this but if we write you into the proposal we think that makes our case stronger and then we'd like to collaborate with you on the eventual project should we win it okay well that leads us on nicely just uh, who who should get in touch rainy birds emerged just because we were interested in the topic and so we found uh, well I mentioned architects just now interior designers developers people who were working in the the co-working uh, sector now who are trying to I think when the move will come there where if you're looking at how to differentiate your offer understanding what the design of your space is actually doing because I think in, in co-working spaces so much is, is going to depend on your business model of, of maintaining membership of your co-working space yeah. it's not just good enough to attract people there in the first place you need them to stay you need to maximize the occupancy and and so that's another area and then of course end users uh, yeah. we've worked in um medical research establishment so research scientists so that kind of scientific analytical community uh i think find it an easier leap to to think about their workspace design in a similar way which makes total sense um so how how should people get in touch well we have a, a website brainybirds.net we uh write blogs fairly frequently i think you've been reading some of them and hopefully you found them accessible and and readable some of i met with a potential client this morning who had lighted on exactly one i think it was the topic we were just talking about silo working oh, and the yeah, sort of yeah. impact of seating plans and all of that which had really spoken to them very loudly uh so we what we do do we don't have a fixed method product it's a, a very bespoke very tailored we totally believe that each business is unique and, and needs a different solution albeit that we have a, a a set of tools that we can use in many different situations and the other thing you've not mentioned but you, you do run workshops which other than being a very interesting way of spending a morning or support is great the the people there there was acoustics engineers light engineers yeah. architects um Lots of very interesting design people uh, and me. So, uh, no, that was a good, uh, good experience and I'd thoroughly recommend that. Thank you. So, right, my, my three questions now, which, uh, yeah, to begin with, nice, easy one. Uh, your favourite building? Favourite, for me, would be something to do with what's uh, going to throw up a new learning and is, is making me curious. Yeah. Uh, I spend a lot of time around King's Cross in London and at the moment there's a, a lot of development happening there and I both the Crick... And the new Google HQ are both uh, interesting buildings. One's obviously complete and now occupied. Uh, that is the Crick. And uh, Google HQ is coming out of the ground. The cores are, are going up. And I, can, I have a, a regular view of that happening. And uh, the, the, both of those are, have a promise, which is to do with collaboration and, and, and better and quicker. And, and Google is all about this kind of learning and the, the knowledge quarter and, and innovation and all of that and and the, again of course as we know google google's premise now which a lot more people have adopted is that the building and its design can make a real difference to that so i'm curious to see if that's realized uh, fair enough yeah pioneers um i don't think they've always necessarily got it got it right but they've certainly kind of led the led the way which real estate related innovation or business excites you most 
I don't think there's one, I think it's just a whole, there's a whole movement that in the time I've been involved in this business, it's, it's, it obviously is growing and it's growing in all sorts of different directions and it's coming from you know, every, every end of that value chain in the, in the property field from, you know, facilities managers who don't just want to be facilities yeah, managers yeah, yeah, anymore yeah. and, um, you know, and property developers who want to think about different ways of attracting, you know, not just doing a standard cate fit out and, and right. you know, well, people, all People want to make decisions based on, based on evidence rather than just gut. I think there's a willingness to be there's definitely a shake up in the in the industry and and part of that shake up or whether it's causing the shake up is the idea that you can you can be better innovation and 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 therefore value you can get out of a property asset um can be enhanced if you're a bit cleverer about it. You were the first person to answer my new question um which is I've got a new building our future reading list available. Please can you recommend us a book? I can, and I'm going to give a plug for Neil Usher, if he hasn't yeah. already been plugged. He, on, he's on there, but we can He's on there, on the Elemental Workplace, because I, I think his writing style, if it, it, his writing style is engaging, and I think it's an easy read, but not a simplistic read. Although his, one of his arguments is, let's not make this whole excellent workplace thing too complicated yep no i will uh, definitely accept him onto the reading list and th- there's also your review is on your uh, of his book is on your uh, website it is. Uh, have a look at that uh ros thank you very much for coming on uh, it's been a pleasure a pleasure thank you very much for having me if you thought that configuring a workplace to optimize your workforce's output was simply an art form Roz has hopefully now put that idea to bed. Workspace science can quantify many of the problems encountered in design and help inform better design-led decisions. As previously mentioned, my prediction is that the discipline is likely to grow significantly in the coming years as property owners and occupiers try to extract meaningful knowledge from the increasing data availability. If you don't already know a workspace scientist, maybe now's the time to get in touch. As mentioned, there's now a Building Our Future recommended reading list, which I'll be adding to with every episode. You can find it on my Twitter page, at building underscore our, or on the website, buildingourfuture.net. Join me next time for a delve into the world of artificial intelligence with renowned real estate thought provocateur, Anthony Slumbers. Anthony Slumbers.